Let us now turn in God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7. Chapter 7, we'll be considering the first nine verses, and then we'll shortly turn to Lord's Day 41, question and answer 108. But first we come to God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, reading to the end of verse 9. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Let us now also consider a confessional reference. We turn to Lord's Day 41 in the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 41 be looking at the seventh commandment. That's the title of our message this afternoon. It was my pattern at uh, Bethel, at Brockville, to uh, this round through the Heidelberg to do only one question and answer from each Lord's Day. This is one of those messages. And we turn now to question 108 of Lord's Day 41. I will ask the question and then we together will Respond with the answer. Question 108 asks, What is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? And we all answer that God condemns all unchastity and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly and live decent and chaste lives within or outside of the holy state of marriage. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, dear friends, dear family, dear loved ones, this afternoon I simply give to you an impossible standard to meet. Marriage is as old as sex. 
One can biblically argue that one, and one should biblically argue that the institution of marriage is older than the practice, the gift, the pleasure of sex. You know, children, the tune, the song, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby and the baby carriage. You have all heard the rhyme, I am sure. We are aware of the creation story, I'm sure as well. The first chapter of the Bible unfolds for us how God created all things. Day six was a special day for humanity in the image of God. He made us male and female. He made us. Genesis 2 verse 4 and following expands upon humanity's creation. God made Adam from the dust of the earth, placed him in the Garden of Eden, and gave him three pre-fall requisites or realities. To consider these, of course, being worship, work, and woman. There's a three-sermon series in there somewhere, and I'll leave that to your new pastor to consider The title of our sermon this afternoon is The Seventh Commandment. God's people received it at Mount Sinai along with the other nine commandments. Many more laws were given and God's people were commanded to live. By God's law, they were commanded to live well. But people had been already living since creation. Why this commandment here? Why this commandment? Now, you shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20, verse 14, Deuteronomy 5, verse 18. Have we exegeted the command as God has understood it and given it to us? Does the seventh commandment only apply to the married? Or since creation, had God meant it to direct our lives in our marriages, in leading up to our marriages, or even in spite of our marriages. Paul thinks so. I think Paul thinks so. And so today, under the authority of God's word, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, being guided by the Heidelberg's Lord's Day 41 question 108, let us ask, what is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? And I have only two points for you this afternoon. Firstly, living a chaste life within the holy state of marriage, and then living a chaste life outside of the holy state of marriage. Firstly, what is living a chaste life within the holy state of marriage look like? Question and answer 108 of the Heidelberg are thematic for our entire message. It uses helpful words like unchastity and chaste. The latter is compared with the word decent and that we should pursue such a life wholeheartedly. It covers both options. And by the way, there are only two options. You are either married or you are not married. Dear world, quit trying to make it look like a spectrum. Let's keep it black and white here. This first point looks only at the wholehearted pursuit of the decent and chaste married life. Before we come to Paul's letter, we need to go back to creation. 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Genesis 1, 28. From Genesis 2, verse 4 to the end of the chapter, we see the completion of God's creative efforts an expression or an expansion of day six, if you will. The passage holds beautiful things to consider. A garden for man is created. Much gold is present. Rivers of life mentioned. Work is given. Obedience is expected. And towards the end of the chapter, seeing that nothing else in creation was suitable to be partnered with Adam, with bone of his bones, and flesh of his flesh, the Lord God creates woman. And he brought her to the man, Genesis 2, verse 22. I've dwelled upon what Adam saw and was thinking when his creator brought him his beloved. The image is captured for me when my would-be father-in-law at that time walked a woman dressed in white up the aisle of our church on a midsummer day, June day, a little more than 21 years ago. The thoughts Adam was thinking, I'd like to think were the thoughts I was thinking on that day watching my father-in-law bring my future wife to the podium, to the pulpit. But all such things, beloved, are fleeting. What you and I were thinking or seeing on our wedding days are still from a perspective of fallenness. At Genesis 2, we get to consider marriage before humanity fell. And so we shall for just a couple of moments. All things were were very good at the end of the Lord's creative works. In humanity's case, it was not yet good for man to be alone, and a helpmeet comparable to him was declared, Genesis 2.18. Our covenant God, our relationship God, our Trinitarian God had community and communion in his mind when he created humanity, both sexes that matched each other. I'd like to say that with all the responsibilities in the garden, Adam couldn't handle it at all, handle it all by himself, so God gave him a wife to help. But Adam is given the command to tend and keep, Genesis 2.15. And then he completes the work of naming every beast of the field, every bird of the air, Genesis 2.19. And then God causes him to rest, and then God brings him Eve. God didn't give a servant to Adam to work for him, but a wife to love him. And one final point to draw from Genesis 2, Eve was literally Adam's flesh. They were comparable in every way. God could have created Eve from the dust of the earth as he did with Adam, but he didn't. They were genetic matches, if you will. You could not have two More purely human specimens. We're talking pre-fall and disease-free in Adam. And from him, God created his match. And she was female. And they matched beautifully. They matched on a level that you and I cannot fully grasp. 
The connection was profound. A pure thought and execution of the divine. This was not a match made in heaven, but in pre-fall Eden, and it was beautiful. I have a Matthew Henry quote here that I really love. Woman was created from the rib of man to be beside him, not from his head to top him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him, near to his heart to be loved by him. And this God gives us the image and then makes the declaration, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, Genesis 2.24. People, this is how God sees marriage. It is profound for us to consider that the institution of marriage is given before humanity falls. We get to dwell upon a perfect married couple and what God thought about it. Talk about an impossible standard. The first recorded transgression of God's pre-fall ordinance of marriage is found at Genesis 4.19 with Lamech taking two wives for himself. Many have, have made all kinds of arguments to justify polygamy using the fathers of the faith. Even Abraham with Sarah and Hagar, Jacob with Leah and Rachel, David with many, Solomon with many more. But precedence doesn't give permission. And pre-fall ordinance always outweighs fallen observations. Always. You know, Genesis captures more sexual sin than we care to observe. And sexual immorality reigns amongst the sinful. As it was in Corinth. Just quickly now, before we come to Paul, we go to Jesus reminding us of Moses allowing divorce because, the hard, because of the hardness of, the, of our hearts, Matthew 19, verse 8. But from the beginning it was not so. With sin comes humanity's profound ability to sin sexually. We have known what God expects of us in our marriages. We understand what God gave in the practice, the gift the pleasure of sex. In the seventh commandment, we have been condemned and restrained and guided in our marriages. We know what the hardness of our hearts have wanted, and Paul comments now on the struggle to be faithful in a world not capable of faith on its own. As we approach the passage now, we're going to hop around it a little bit. We'll begin at verse 2 with expressing marriage as the solution to keep one's sexual immorality in check. In other words, beloved, using all of history as an example, 
If you cannot control your hormones, the best thing for you to do is to commit to that relationship approved by God that invites love, that expects communion, frankly, that produces offspring in an unsinful way. 7 verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Then Paul goes on to explain that if you have to go this route, if you want to go this route, you're not going to have time for much else. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Husbands, have you rendered to your wife the affection that is due her in your marriage? Wives, have you rendered to your husbands the affection that is due him in your marriage? Are you self-giving? Do you desire? Are you committed? Let's make things uncomfortable now, if I haven't already. Have you sung the song of Solomon to one another? Surely you have read through the songs of Solomon as a family, as a husband and wife. Many have considered that song a reflection or allegory of God's love for Israel or the church. There is such a truth in it. The church has been known as the wedding bride of Christ. Jeremiah 2, chapter 2, verse 2. Hosea 2, verses 14 to 20. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. But don't let a possible allegory negate what you ought to render unto one another. Your ESV Reformation Study Bibles says of the Song of Solomon, it says, The Song of Solomon shows us love outside of Eden, not free from sorrow, but still beautiful, sinless, and acceptable. Well, then Paul goes on to show in marriage, to show that in marriage, it's no longer about what you want, but what you want for your spouse. Verses 4 and 5. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife uh, does. Do you not, uh, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So then finally, if you must marry, then you must strive to do it right, to marry in the Lord. And there's more to say, but I'll save it for the next point. Paul concludes at verse 9 with, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, Secondly, then, what is living a chaste life outside of the holy state of marriage? And now the grander intent of our passage shall come to light. Yes, Paul has used marriage as an example here, but marriage itself is not the end-all and be-all of living a sanctified life. But before we get to that, 
we need to go once again, helpfully, back to Eden. Before God gave woman to man, he gave him work to do. To see this, we simply need to go back to Genesis 2. No sooner is Adam placed in the garden where the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stand in the midst, Genesis 2, verse 9. No sooner is Adam placed there to tend and to keep it, Genesis 2, 15. Adam was given things to do. The garden needed to be kept, but even more important than this, the creator needed to be obeyed. The terms of remaining in the garden are given at Chapter 2, 16 and 17, I'll read it for you. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then, as Adam is contemplating such things, the passage follows with God's thoughts about Adam's mate. And then we find Adam given the task of naming all the animals. No small feat, no small task, I would think. But God has a motive in place in doing so. After this large task, Genesis 2.20, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Adam was capable of doing the work before Eve came along. He didn't need a servant. God made for him a wife comparable to him. Now we can talk all about marriage and and headship in another sermon. Complementarianism versus egalitarianism is not the point I'm trying to make here. And if you don't know what those words mean, I'm sure Brother London will be able to fill you in. Our catechism has directed us to the pursuit of decent and chaste lives. And we do Paul a disservice to see 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 to 9 as Paul's argument for why singlehood is better than marriage. Paul here is much, much more concerned with our patterns of prayer and fasting. He is he's much more concerned with your relationship with Jesus rather than whether you should marry or not. This was no doubt a question that had been asked. Verse 1 of our passage presupposes that the Corinthians were wondering about what was more righteous, the married or the single life. The topic of sexual immorality had already been breached. We have to go to 1 Corinthians 5 to see such things. Sin had been reported that was not even named amongst the Gentiles or unbelievers in the church. That is what Paul has in mind when he begins at verse 1 saying, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And that is why at verse 1 he concludes with these words, It is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You see, Adam was able to honor God before Eve became his helpmeet. We've just followed the order of the words from Genesis 2, and then to see how far these Corinthians have gone, not only in transgressing God's commands for marriage, but also in them refusing to condemn such immorality, of course, 
Well, of, of course Paul would concede that being single is better than defiling the institution of marriage, as they had. But remember that word concede or, or concession. We'll see it again at verse 6. Before that, however, we, we see the reason for a single life encouraged by Paul. To the married, he suggests a time apart. That's verse 5. Well, for what? For prayer and fasting. We don't want to miss this. Paul is suggesting time apart from a husband and wife to grow closer to God. We've already admitted that marriage is full-time work, especially for we the fallen, But beloved, you need your Lord more than you need each other. And yet no one suggests complete separation in order to do so. God appreciates marriage. He gave man and woman to each other for each other, to procreate more for each other. Malachi 2 verse 15 Paul didn't stay single so that he could have more time for himself, but that he could have more time for God. The pursuit of a decent and chaste life before your Lord and Savior, Mr. and Miss single people, single person, is more of a full-time job than marriage. Marriage is actually the relief, the easier route rather than loving the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. The husband and wife are allowed to take time away from that pursuit to focus on bringing each other closer to Christ. Paul is suggesting that you, single people, have, more, have a more serious and a more glorious calling on your hands should you choose to remain single. Without a spouse to take care of, to honor, to support, Paul says, great, more time for God. Singlehood, according to Paul, is not about more time for me. Singlehood, according to Paul, is about more time for God. More time for fasting, more time for prayer, more time to apply your gifts to the church, more time for kingdom work. Dear single person, does Paul's concern for you in singlehood define your lifestyle? He's not commanding this of you. After we read verse 1 and then clump together verses 2 and 2 to 5 as we have, we come to verse 6 where we read, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, the norm here is to marry, to desire marriage. The harder choice as far as Paul is concerned is to remain single. The expectation for a single person, however, is to be more chaste, more decent, more focused upon Christ-like things, but for Paul, more glorious as well. Beloved, Paul wants you to know your Savior. 
You can do so from within the confines of marriage. This he doesn't deny nor condemn. But you can do so much more outside of the confines of marriage. You can hear as much from verses 6 to 8. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I, was, I am myself. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Talk about an impossible standard. In our marriages, we have ignored one another. We have grown cold towards one another. We have belittled one another. We have cheated on one another. We have not prayed for one another. We have not sung the song of Solomon to one another, and God is displeased. In our single lives, we have not fully committed the the available time to God. We have stolen it from him selfishly. We have serviced ourselves. We have not cared to give ourselves to someone else that they could bring us closer to God. We have not been, we have been walking away and enjoying the freedom of sin as we go. Our lives lived have not glorified God but condemned our very lives to hell. Is there no hope? Forgive me for being so hard on you. I speak to myself too. But I tell you, I tell you that you, dear believers, are the bride of Christ adorned for her husband. Seeing the Song of Solomon as a relationship God keeps with his church is not about the sex. Keep that in your marriages. It is about the commitment of the husband and the yearning of his wife for him. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Ephesians 5.23 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25 Children, how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. The gospel message is that even if your marriage is terrible, And even if your single life is filled with selfish isolationism, you may repent of such things. You may do better. Your Savior has died for such sins. From such sin you must repent. The Holy Spirit is able, willing, and tasked 
with washing them away as purely as the washing of water by the word. So has the Father willed for you. What is God's will then for us in the seventh commandment? That God condemns all unchastity and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly and live decent and chaste lives within or outside the holy state of marriage so that you, through Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, may be brought closer to him in this life only to spend it with him for an eternity coming in Christ in Christ this impossible task both within marriage and outside of it is fulfilled may the holy spirit commend you all to such a task and may god's glory be found in all of it. Amen. Let us pray. O dear Lord, that our marriages would reflect what you gave to Adam and Eve at Eden and before they fell. O dear Lord, May our single lives reflect the tasks given to Adam in the garden before you gave him Eve. Father, for those seeking singlehood, may they find your glory in it. For those seeking marriage, may they find your glory in it. Let not this world's versions and perversions of this glorious pre-fall ordinance be a reflection of what lies in our hearts, and if it does, dear Lord, call us to repentance. Call us to newness of life. Call us towards the strength of Christ who gives us all we shall ever need and most a glory that is reflective of your holy love for us, of your holy love for marriage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.